of y'all know that even though 2021 may have got off to a, a strange start, God is still good. God is still good. Amen. Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29 today. In Jeremiah 29. We're going to be looking in the Old Testament today at verses 4 through 7 in Jeremiah 29. If you're new around here still, I just want to welcome you again. If you're watching online or with us in person, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Strong Tower. We are in the middle of a series on our new mission and vision statements. So this is week two. If you missed the first week, you can go back and listen online, but we're glad that you're with us. We're looking at the second half of our mission statement today from Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading of God's word in verse four through seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, Thriving Communities. Thriving Communities. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, how amazing it is to be in your presence wherever we find ourselves today, whether we're at our house or in this building or listening to this on a podcast or on YouTube or wherever it may be, God, we have the privilege of being in your presence. We have the privilege of knowing your goodness wherever we find ourselves. Whether it's been a difficult day or a rejoicing day, whatever has happened, you remain good. You remain just. You remain righteous. You remain loving. So God, as we come to your word, we know that your word is just like you, inspired by you, the stable, secure, loving, good God. And so we ask that you would speak through your word today, begin to shape us today in whatever way you would want us to be shaped. May we as your people, as we think about the mission you've given us, may we bring glory to your name and for your good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So usually going back and forth between the U.S. and Canada border requires a passport. But there are some uh, exceptions, and this exception I'm about to tell you is a rather fascinating one that has happened in, uh, in, a, in a place that you may not think about, which is a library. There's a library that has been built right on the border of Vermont and Quebec. And it's called the Haskell Free Library and Opera House. And it's fascinating because it was built intentionally on the border between the two nations because a woman who was an American lost her husband. He passed away and he was a Canadian. And he left her quite a fortune in his will. And, and so he, she inherited all this money that that uh, she wanted to do something for the community, so she decided in honor of their two heritages that she would build this library free to the public, and it was right on the border. 
I mean, we're talking for the last, since it was 1904, for the last hundred years, it's been in both countries. And so you've got the opera stage in the Canada side, you've got the books in the Canada side, but you've got the opera seats in the U.S. side, and you've got the, uh, the entrance in the U.S. side. And so people have said that this is the only library in the entire nation that has no books, because they're all in Canada. I mean, there's literally a black line down the middle of the, of the building, a thick black line separating Canada from the U.S. It's the only opera house in the U.S. with no stage. I mean, it is literally two different places. They have two different addresses. There's only one entrance, though. The only entrance is on the U.S. side, and in order to come in from Canada, they've, they've arranged it to where there's a sidewalk that wraps around the building that is guarded by U.S. Marshals. They only allow you to go in the sidewalk area and then into the building, and that's it. I mean, it's literally the only library in the world in two countries at the same time. And so people for over 100 years have asked, is it Canadian or is it American? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. It's both. It's not either or, it's both and. And I think this is a perfect illustration of, of what we struggle with in the church and we've struggled with ever since the church began where we've got this struggle of both and where we want to choose either or, we want to get rid of the tension, and it's really both and. And it's all over the place. I mean, think about, uh, you think about God, and, and people have asked, is God transcendent or is He imminent, right? That's fancy language for, is He high and holy and lifted up, or is He close and intimate and near to me? Yes, He's both. Is Jesus God or is He man? Yes, He's both. Is God in complete control of everything that happens in your life, or do you have choices that have consequences? Yes, it's both. Right? I mean, this is, this is how Christianity works, and all throughout history, most of the theological debates in the church have been about erasing the tension. We've tried to get rid of the tension of either or, or both and, and make it an either or, and it never works. It always leads to heresy. In fact, you can kind of bank on it that all heresy is bad uh, dealing with the tension. It's trying to erase the tension. In fact, the religious leaders came to Jesus one time, and they tried to get Jesus to do this. They, they told Jesus, you know, we want to hear what your uh, summary of the Old Testament is. Tell us what you would summarize the law as in one statement. And what did Jesus say? He gave them two. He said, love God, love your neighbor. They wanted one. They, they wanted to reduce it to an either or. Tell us what one thing. And Jesus gives them two. He refused to be put into this box of either or. He refused to say you can love God and not love your neighbor. He refused to say you can love your neighbor and not love God. It's both. It has to be both. And that's the tension that you see in the gospel all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible. And so we, we have this tension even in our mission where uh, we have this question, is the church called to make disciples or are we called to make a difference? Yes, it's both. There's this tension in the Bible of personal and community transformation. That God wants to see not only your heart transformed, He wants to see the whole earth, the whole creation 
transform. And so we're continuing our series called Renew the Vision. And last week we looked at our uh, new mission statement that we have reworded and, and you can see it outside in the, in the entrance and other places on our website and stuff. But this is the new mission statement to summarize it in one sentence, even though I'm just telling you not to do that. We are summarizing it in two, but, or in one, but it's got two parts. And listen, you'll hear them, right? We make healthy disciples of Jesus who cultivate thriving communities. We make healthy disciples of Jesus who cultivate thriving communities. It's both. And so last week we looked at healthy disciples and healthy disciples grow and connect and serve in Christ. And now this week, we're going to look at the community side. We're going to look at what does it mean for us to cultivate thriving communities. And we could do a whole series on this, but we're going to try to look at it just from Jeremiah 29 this morning for the next few minutes. So first, we need to realize that we're living in exile. We're living in exile. This is the first point, living in exile. Look at verse 4 from Jeremiah 29. Read it again. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, we're picking up in the middle of Jeremiah's prophetic work. right? Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet because he had the arduous task of having to deliver bad news. He was prophesying in the middle of Israel's transition into exile. So he started as they were being warned. He was telling God's people, hey, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to God, this is not going to go well for you. God's judgment is coming. It's coming. It's coming. He was telling them for year after year after year. And then it did. And God sends Babylon as his instrument of judgment. And the great evil nation of Babylon comes in and they wipe them out. They defeat their armies, they burn down their buildings, they take their families and separate them and send them into bondage and exile, and they're removed from their home, and their home looks like a wasteland, and what they had was just a memory. I mean, it's devastation. And it's a picture in Jeremiah of what happened before, all the way back in Genesis. Right? The exile that Israel is experiencing is a picture of the greater exile that we all experience in all of creation. If you go back to Genesis 1, God creates the world out of nothing, and He says what? It is good. Over and over, it is good, it is good. And then He creates His, his people, humanity, and it says it's very good. And so it's, it's all flourishing the way that God designed it to flourish. It's, it's what the Bible describes as shalom. Shalom means peace. It's often translated peace, but it means so much more than that. It's, it's this sense of thriving, that everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen. Emotional, spiritual, relational, physical, all of it is thriving the way that God designed it to thrive. And that's the way it was in the garden. That's the way it was if you read the first two chapters of the Bible. But you get into the third chapter, and it doesn't last very long. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and you know the well-known story of of how in in our sin, it it sends all of creation into this spiral. And so Adam and Eve realize that they're filled with guilt and shame, and they hide from God, and then God curses creation, and then He exiles Adam and Eve out of the garden. And from then on, all of creation is in exile. I mean, all of, of God's people are not living in this state of shalom, but in this state of shattered reality. And so sin has sent all of creation into a kind of exile. Uh, Our daughters, uh, one one of them recently got into some, I don't know, she got angry about something. I I don't know. It was an argument with one of her sisters or something. This was probably about a year ago. And 
And she got so angry. You ever been so angry you start looking around for things to throw? Like she, you, she had that look on her face. She's looking for something to throw. And, and she's looking around the room and she spots the TV remote. And she picks up the TV remote. She turns around and without looking where she's going, she chucks that thing as hard as she can at the TV. And I mean, she's about five feet from the television. And as soon as it hits, I mean, the screen just shatters. And so, you know, her first thought is, what have I done? She runs away thinking she's going to get in trouble. The other kids come and tell me right away, right? <laughs> so she's panicking. And I go in there and I said, well, let's see if it turns on. Let's see what happened. You turn it on and there's this orange volcano looking thing that all the colors where it hit and where it shattered, that's kind of what it did to the screen. But everything around it, you could kind of see behind it what was on the television. But you, you could see through all the cracks and, and the volcanic lava or whatever that was. I don't know what it was, but you could see kind of through it and a, a sense of what was on the television. So in other words, the, the image was still there, but it was broken. It was broken. And this is what sin has done to us in, in all of creation, right? That's what sin has done to, to this world, that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. But the design is still visible, right? You can still see somewhat of what God designed for this world to flourish and to thrive. You can see it, but it's broken. And it's broken at every level. I mean, we're broken in our thoughts. Our thoughts that used to be wise are now foolish. Our feelings that used to be trustworthy are now corrupted. Our actions that used to be loving are now self-serving. Right? You begin to see that what, what used to be is no longer, and, it, and it's all over. It's not just in us. It's, it's all of creation. In fact, sin is not just an individual problem. It's a corporate problem. And so you see sin not just in individual people. You see them in organizations. Many people call this systemic racism. Systemic racism is just the reality that sinners like us have gathered together and created groups that also sin together. That's all it means. It means that if you think that an organization built by sinful people isn't going to be sinful, you don't understand sin. And so systemic sin affects all that we do as humanity. It affects the way we think. It affects the way we operate. It affects our education system that denies communities of color access to opportunities. It affects the justice system that gives preference to those that are wealthy versus those that are poor. It affects our uh, business where we exclude those who are no longer in our social network. I mean, there's, there's this exile. That, that's what it means to live in the world of exile. This is the world of broken people and broken places. That's what it means to, to have shattered shalom. But I don't have to preach and try to convince you that the world is broken. I mean, I, I, you can look, you can turn on the news, you can just look at your children. You can look in the mirror. But the question, the burning question as we're in exile is, what do I do in exile? Well, how do we live in the midst of a broken and fallen world that's full of sin everywhere? How do I live? Well, I think there's two ways that the church has gotten it wrong throughout history. It's uh, separatism and assimilation. Right? Separ separatism, you separate from the world because in reality you think you're better than the world. Right? It's rooted in pride because you think that they're the real bad people 
and I'm a good person, and if I get anywhere close to the bad people, they might rub off on me, so I'll stay over here. And so separation is what it looks like in the church where we create our own things and we don't talk to those people out there in the world, and it's full of pride. But then the opposite is just as dangerous, which is assimilation, which if, if uh, separating is in pride, assimilating is in fear, where rather than you standing up for righteousness in the midst of a corrupt culture, you just assimilate. You just give in. You're afraid to stand up for something. You're afraid to live for Jesus in a fallen world. And so you assimilate, and by the time you look up, you can't tell the difference between them and you. But neither way, neither way is the gospel way. It's, it's not to separate, it's not to assimilate. So what is it? How do we live as exiles? And this is what God wants to tell His people as they are in Babylon. And it's a surprising answer, I believe. He says, settle down. Settle down. And this is the second point, living as exiles. Look at what He says in verse 5. In verse 5, He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now you might be asking, what in the world does that have to do with me? They're they're talking about real estate. They're talking about family planning. What, What in the world are they talking about? Well, it has everything to do with us because the New Testament calls us exiles. Some translations call, call us resident aliens. I like that just because it sounds strange. But it's exiles. It's this idea, like I've been saying, that the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that we don't belong here. We are, we are from somewhere else, living in this place. And so the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, God tells Israel how to live as exiles. And so you've got to listen up. Because the Bible says that it uses this metaphor of an ambassador. Right, what's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who's living in a place that, that isn't your own, right? And he's saying, when you're there as an ambassador, I want you to do what? Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have families. In other words, basically, I want you to settle down and live your life. I want you to basically settle down and make Babylon your home. You're no longer a tourist, you're not a guest. You're a local here. You're a local. This is your home. Become part of the fabric of the society. Put down roots. Begin to make a difference. In fact, he says in verse 7, look at what he says. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, that word translated welfare is the word, the Hebrew word shalom. It's what I was saying earlier. It's, it's this peace. It's this thriving. It's all of life flourishing the way that God has designed it to flourish. And so in one sense, uh, it was their sin that brought them into exile, right? It was their sin that brought them into Babylon, just like us. But God was also working through that situation to send them on mission. Did you catch what he said? He said, I sent you into exile because I sent you on a mission that you would seek the thriving of Babylon. Now, don't miss how radical and crazy this is. This is Babylon. Babylon. One of the most evil, corrupt nations ever to exist on planet Earth. 
And he said, I want you to seek their thriving. Babylon, the people who destroyed your homes and burned your cities and raped your wives, the people who sold you into slavery, I want you to seek their thriving. Babylon. I mean, this is about as radical as you can get in the Old Testament, close to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, where he says what? He says, uh, he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, this is costly living right here. What, what God is calling Israel to do is something that they would never do themselves because it doesn't make natural sense. He's saying, I want you to bless your enemies who've done nothing but curse you. But that's how exiles live. Exiles love, listen, exiles love at their own expense. At their own expense. Martha's Vineyard is a uh, small island off the coast of Massachusetts and in the early 1700s, they had an a, a interesting phenomenon. They had a very high rate of hereditary deafness. It was so high at one point that about a quarter of the people on the island were deaf. Now, it's vanished since then, and, and it's no longer the reality now. But back then at the peak, a quarter of the people in their town were deaf. And so one lady who's a Yale professor, she's a researcher. She was researching this, and she wanted to research it. Her name is Nora Ellen Gross. She wanted to research it in, in the sense of sociology because the phenomenon was that even though a quarter of the society was deaf, they were still integrated into the rest of the world they, or in the rest of the town. They were still flourishing. They were a part of politics. They were a part of business, education, the church. There was nothing that, that separated the hearing from the non-hearing. And so it was fascinating to her. She wanted to go do some research on, on the history of this, and she started interviewing families and their ancestors and, and people who were connected to the time and who had done research. And this is one of her uh, responses she got. She said, The deaf were like everyone else on the island because everyone in town, get this, everyone in town decided that they would learn sign language. We all became bilingual for the sake of our neighbors. Isn't that amazing? In other words, he, he, he's saying that the responder is he's saying the, the thing that brought us together when this person was disadvantaged is that we as the advantaged were willing to disadvantage ourselves. We were willing to take on ourselves the, the burden of learning a brand new language, something we never knew before that was going to take time and effort. We were willing to do that for their sake. And you know what happened? You know, you know what happened as a result? It bettered them. Just like God said to Israel. The, the, the people they were interviewing, they said, you know what, we realized that we could sit in church and if we were listening to a boring sermon, we could sign language to someone across and no one knew we were talking. We realized that as we were fishing out in the ocean that we could sign language across the, the, the water to the other boat. And, you know, this is pre-cell phone day. They, they were able to talk across the ocean. They realized that they could talk to their neighbors across the field. They realized that there were so many uses for this new language that they were advantaged, but it happened because they were willing to disadvantage themselves. They were willing to lower themselves for the welfare of others, and it brought about thriving. That's how communities thrive, right? My thriving is tied to your thriving. 
and your thriving is tied to my thriving. You can't separate them, right? The, the biblical idea of shalom is wholeness, that all of the parts are working together in unity and wholeness in a sense that everything is designed or working the way it's designed. That's shalom. And the only way it happens is self-sacrificial love. It's the only way it happens. That if I lay down my life for you and you lay down my, or your life for me, there's shalom. If I disadvantage myself so that you could be advantaged and then you would disadvantage yourself so that I could be disadvantaged, there's shalom. It, you see how that works? That, that I can't thrive. This is the lie of sin, that I can thrive without your thriving. The lie of sin is that I can be advantaged as much as I want to and it doesn't matter whether you're advantaged because that's your responsibility. That's not how thriving happens. Thriving only happens if you're thriving. That's the way it works. This is, this is what it means to be connected as God's people in all of creation, connected together. Dr. King reminded us that we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all. All. And so God tells us here in, the, in this text, He tells us two ways that that happens, how, how we can seek that thriving. It's work and pray. Work and pray. I love this because he just makes it real simple. He says, work, I, I want you to get your hands dirty. I want you to seek the welfare of this place. And, and he gets real practical, like buy a house, go have kids, go, go start a garden, start a business. He, he's saying, I want you to get real practical, the kinds of things that every person can do. You don't have to be full-time in ministry. You don't have to start a YouTube channel. You don't got to be famous on Instagram. All you have to do is do what you're doing with intentionality, with the intentionality of this, I'm going to disadvantage myself to advantage someone else. That's it. So the way you buy your groceries, the way you mow your grass, the way you go to your job on Monday morning, the way you love your kids, the way you educate at your school, whatever you do, you do it by saying, I want to disadvantage myself to advantage somebody else. That's how thriving happens. He says, that's the kind of work you got to do. It's, it's not about, you know, conversations. Conversations are tired. It's not about social media. Social media is just full of noise. It's not about who can be the loudest and, and make the best argument. He's saying, get your hands dirty and do the work of love, of love, of disadvantaging yourself. And one of the best ways you do that is by staying. I love this. He, he says, you're going to be here 70 years. Settle down. 70 years. Just, just imagine, what, what if you said, I'm going to seek the thriving of one place for 70 years? 70 years. And that's what Israel was getting the news of. He's saying, you're going to be here for 70 years. Some of you aren't going to see home anymore. Some of you won't get back to Jerusalem. 70 years. What, what could you do in 70 years? I mean, that's what leads you to pray. I'll be honest with you. That's why he says, I mean, you're going to be here 70 years. You're going to need to pray. You start praying when you realize the work is bigger than what you have. When you, when you realize that the work God is calling you to, to see the thriving of a community over 70 years, you realize, I can't do this. 
I, I can't do what God has called me to do. I can't change the things that he wants me to change. I need him to do the work. Right? You start praying when you realize the work that I can do is not enough work, so I need him to work. I mean, praying without working is ignorant, but I would say working without praying is arrogant. It's arrogant. But God invites you in to say, look, you're going you're to be called to something you can't do, but I can do it. And so I want you to work, and I want you to pray. I want you to work, and I want you to pray. Uh, so some people call this uh, contemplative activism. I don't know if I like that term, but, but, but it's, this, it's this blending of the two where you're saying, I want to seek God and I want to seek the flourishing of this place. And to do that, we're going to need hope, right? We're, we're going to have to look beyond the exile for hope. And this is the last point, living past the exile. Look at verse 10. This is what God says at the end here. He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now this might be confusing because earlier God just said, Make this your home. Settle down. This is it. And now he says, wait, wait, this isn't your home. Don't forget, I'm, I'm taking you back and I'm going to bring you back to the place that I brought you from. And, and so he, he's giving, again, this idea of an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who, who goes to another place representing their country. Right? They're living in one place representing another place. And, and they represent their kingdom's values and interests in the other kingdom. And so this is what God is calling us uh, into. He's saying, I want you to settle down, but I want you to continue looking up. I want you to say that there's coming a day when they will return to their home. And for Israel, it would be 70 years. But for us, we're not given a time period. We're just given a promise. We're given the promise that this world isn't our ultimate home, that we work for its welfare. We pray for its flourishing. Our hope is elsewhere. Our hope is in a God who will one day visit His people again. Our hope is in a God who will one day come to make all things right. Our hope is in a God who says the trouble won't last always. Right? There will be days when the thriving isn't developing. There will be months when the change isn't coming. There will be centuries when the light seems like it's overcome by darkness. But God wants you to remember, He will visit. He will visit. Right? Jesus visited once already. God became man and moved into our community. He settled down in the ghetto of Galilee and he lived under the brokenness of the Roman Empire. He lived under the corruption of the religious institution. He worked and he prayed. He listened and he loved. But John said, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to us to, to be received and instead of being received, he was rejected. Right? We were his enemies. We were his oppressors. We in our sin were the ones who put him on a cross. We were the, the ones who put a crown of thorns on him. We were the ones who sent him to the grave. We were the ones who exiled the Son of God from God the Father. By our sin, he was cast out. By our sin, he was rejected. By our sin, he was destroyed in his body. By our sin. He came not to save friends, but his enemies. And so our, our greatest hope is that Jesus will come again. He will visit again, but this time not in weakness, in power. This time not in patience, but in swiftness. This time not in mercy, but in justice. 
There's coming a day when Jesus will visit and bring an end to the exile. He will bring with Him His shalom. He will bring with Him His equity. He will bring with Him His wholeness. He will bring the glory of God that God designed His creation to be. And out of the chaos, He will bring a thriving community. A thriving community. And so we live in exile with this eternal hope. We live in exile with this eternal reality that overshadows everything. And so we look past to eternity. There, uh, when the p- pandemic began, <clears throat> when the pandemic began, there was a man uh, by the name of Eric Whitmore who, who saw an uh, opportunity for music. Back in 2011, his TED Talk went viral as he had this uh, huge choir. It was 185 singers and I think 12 nations that they were representing. Huge choir, and it went viral. And after that, he started creating a bigger choir and a bigger choir, and then eventually he got to these massive choirs that were virtual. And then when the pandemic hit, he saw this is an opportunity for us to bring together the most people who've ever been brought together for, for singing. And so he, he gathers together multiple people that he could invite to be a part of this project, and uh, he writes a specific song for this project, and people who are interested, they would record themselves singing by themselves, just in a room by themselves, on video, singing, and, you know, they might be singing tenor or alto, soprano, whatever it is, whatever their part is, they're singing their part, and then they would send their video into, into this man. And then he would have the job of putting them all together. Now, I watched the video of making this, and some of these people are good, but some of them are terrible. Like, you know, American Idol, you know, first couple episodes, kind of terrible. Like me singing on the, on the video, terrible. They're just terrible. But he had this job of putting them all together into one voice. One voice. All 17,500 and whatever the number is, 20 or 62 of them. 17,562 voices from 129 countries. He brought them together. And if you go watch the video... It's gorgeous. I mean, out of the chaos comes this beautiful choir. Out of the mess is built this incredible masterpiece. That's the hope. That's the hope that one day God is coming to bring it together. That out of the chaos, He will create a thriving community. Out of the mess that we've created in this world, He will create a masterpiece of new heavens and new earth. The hope is not here. The hope is then. The hope is that out of all of that mess, we we look past to a day where the exile ends, right? We look past to a day where there's an eternal hope, where we look past the exile and see relationships that thrive again. We see hearts made whole again. We see creation shining again. We see righteousness reigning again. We see communities restored again. We see love fully alive again. We see the new heavens and the new earth here now. God's kingdom come fully. We live in that hope. We make disciples in that hope. We seek thriving communities in that hope. We work and we pray in that hope. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is God changes you, but he also changes everything. He redeems all creation. And so I want to ask you as we close, what... What are you finding your hope in as you live as an exile? Because whether you realize it or not, you're an exile. This is not your home, but God calls you to make it your home for now. 
He calls you to live out His purposes here. To seek the thriving of this community. No matter what the evil is that's been done. No matter what the evil is that you've done. He's calling us to seek shalom. In a strong tie, we believe God is calling us into that mission. Will you join us on that mission? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you um, entered the city on your way to the cross, I'm reminded that you, you wept over Jerusalem. This was a time when Jerusalem was rebuilt and many would say was full of physical glory and yet you wept. You wept over a city that was lost. You wept over a city that would put its hope in all the wrong things. You wept over a city that was corrupt from the core. But you also wept because you knew that you were about to begin to make things right. You were headed to Calvary to purchase our redemption. You were headed to Calvary to purchase all that we've ever desired in creation as creation longs for a new heavens and a new earth. You were headed to Calvary to crush Satan's head. And so today I pray as we work and we pray for the flourishing of this community as a church, both corporately and individually, we just, we ask that you would give us that hope. Remind us of the good news of the gospel that you are at work. And we're delighted to be a part of it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.